and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Hello, I'm Pat Malone, and I'd like to welcome you to The Church in the Home, where we share the light of God's Word from our home to you. I know the truth of God's Word, and I believe what I heard, yeah, yeah. I believe what I heard. I believe what I heard, so I'm standing on the Word of God. This morning, what we're going to be going to and looking at in the Word of God is the beauty and perfection of God's Word. The beauty and perfection of God's Word. We finally have reached spring. for a while, I, I was starting to get convinced that spring itself had been on lockdown, quarantined this year, and just couldn't come out. But it seems like it's defying the orders, and it's starting to come out, and we, we're actually able to enjoy. Today's going to be 71. It's, it's such a shame we won't be able to be in person. It's going to be 71. Right now, here, the sun is shining. It's not supposed to be raining today. And... One way or the other, I think we'll get out, you know, at least out on our patio to enjoy the beauty of the day. God's world, His creation, is so beautiful. It's so beautiful, and it's something that we do so enjoy. And before we actually turn to God's Word and look at the beauty and perfection of God's Word in the pages of the book, I'd like to begin by showing you this video that we prepared for this occasion that shows us the beauty of God's creation in other ways. Ecclesiastes 1, verses 5 through 8. The sun also ariseth, and the sun goeth down, and hasteth to the place where he arose. The wind goeth toward the south, and turneth about unto the north. It whirleth about continually, and the wind returneth again according to his circuits. All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. Unto the place from whence the rivers come, thither they return again. All things are full of labor, man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. Isaiah 40 verse 28 Hast thou not known, hast thou not heard, that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary? There is no searching of his understanding. Job 12, verses 7 through 9. But ask now the beasts, and they shall teach thee, and the fowls of the air, and they shall tell thee. Or speak to the earth, and it shall teach thee, and the fishes of the sea shall declare unto thee. Who knoweth not in all these that the hand of the Lord hath wrought this? Psalm 33, verses 6 through 9. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. He gathereth the waters of the sea together as in heap. He layeth up the depth in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spake, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. Psalm 24, verses 1 and 2. The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, 
the world, and they that dwell therein. For he hath founded it upon the seas, and established it upon the floods. Psalm 8, verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth, who hath set thy glory above the heavens. Verses 3 and 4. When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? Psalm 96, verses 1 through 4. O sing unto the Lord a new song. Sing unto the Lord all the earth. Sing unto the Lord, bless his name. Show forth his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the heathen, his wonders among all people. For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. Verses 11 and 12. Let the heavens rejoice and let the earth be glad. Let the sea roar in the fullness thereof. Let the field be joyful and all that is therein. Then shall all the trees of the wood rejoice. Psalm 98, verse 4. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all the earth. Make a loud noise and rejoice and sing praise. Verses 7 and 8. Let the earth roar in the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. Let the floods clap their hands, let the hills be joyful together. Psalm 104, verses 1 through 3. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, thou art very great. Thou art clothed with honor and majesty, who coverest thyself with light as with a garment, who stretchest out the heavens like a curtain, who layeth up the beams of his chambers in the waters, who maketh the clouds his chariot, who walketh upon the wings of the wind. Psalm 19, verses 1 through 3. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. I never grow tired of seeing a spectacular sunset. Do you? No. Whenever a beautiful rainbow appears in the sky, you see people run out of their houses, people stop their cars, People get out and look to just behold it, to behold the beauty and the, the splendor of God's artwork. People travel hundreds and hundreds of miles to see the grandeur of God's creation in places like the Grand Canyon, Yosemite, Yellowstone. All of those were portrayed in that video. Right here in New York, we have the um, Niagara Falls we've been to a number of times, and you see tourists from all over the world that have come to just take that in. Travel the halfway around the world, literally, just to behold the magnificence of God's work. And yet, as beautiful, as awesome, as inspiring, as all of those natural beauties are. The greatest of God's work, the most beautiful, the most perfect, is His Word. His Word, that's as it says in Psalm 138.2, I will worship 
toward thy holy temple and praise thy name for thy loving kindness and for thy truth, for thou hast magnified the, thy word above all thy name. The greatest of God's works is his word. And his word, like all of his works, demonstrates the power and the perfection of the Creator. Look at Romans chapter 1. We need to look no farther than the pages of his book, although we see it in all of God's creation, the proof of the hand of God, of his design in that wonderful creation. That's what it tells us in Romans chapter 1 and verse 19. Because that which may be, may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse." The invisible is clearly seen by the visible. The evidence of the visible, of this wonderful, magnificent world, of the mountains, of the rainbow, of the stars in the sky, and the magnificent beauty of God's Word in all of its detail and perfection show that there is a God behind it. We're going to look today... <clears throat> at some of the wonderful beauty and perfection of God's Word. And you can go to Psalm 12. God's Word is a perfect Word. It is a perfect Word. It is perfect in its form. It's perfect in its content. It's perfect in detail. It's perfect in structure. It's perfect in accomplishing its great purpose, that great purpose that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. That everything we would need in life, everything that we would need for our own abundance, for our own sufficiency, for our own joy and peace, and beyond that, to be able to give and help others is in the pages of God's Word. And it is a perfect Word. And in order for it to be a perfect word, the words in the word must also be perfect. You cannot have the greater perfect if the lesser is imperfect. You cannot have the greater if the lesser is imperfect. That lesser, meaning not lesser in terms of importance, but lesser in terms of size, smaller, the detail of God's word, the way that it's put together, the way that it's crafted, the way that God designed it, and each individual part being so beautiful and so intricately made. And yet beyond that, the way that it's fitted together. It's like I have here this beautiful pocket watch that my wife gave us. We just celebrated our 39th anniversary yesterday. Um, she gave this to me, and then I felt like I had to ask her to marry me. <laughs> no, a little bit of a joke. Our birthdays were, are real close together. They're only five days apart. She gave this to me for, for um, my birthday, and then I gave her a ring for hers. Um, 
But you know, you think about a beautiful watch like this, and they talk about the fine Swiss watches and those watchmakers, and how they're an example of just incredible craftsmanship, the way that it's so perfectly fitted together. And that's true. And yet, the way that God put together His Word is so much greater. His Word is perfect, as it says in Psalm 12, in verse 6. The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a fire, in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Silver <clears throat> purified in a furnace of earth. You know, the, way, the reason why silver is put into a furnace of fire is to burn off any impurities. If you've ever seen a, a steel mill, I, I, I've done that, I've been in steel mills, and you see these incredibly white-hot furnaces, you know, this, this fire that even from across the room, you just feel like you're literally in hell. <laughs> and they're so hot because they put in that either molten ore or that scrap metal, and everything else is burnt off it's heated up to the temperature where everything has to be burnt off except that pure silver or whatever metal we're going for that's left behind. Everything else is burnt off. And here it says the Word of God is like one that's been purified seven times, where it wasn't just put in once, but done over and over and over again. Seven, as we'll see, representing perfection. That's God's Word. It's that pure. It's that perfect. I'm convinced of the perfection and the unparalleled beauty of God's Word because I've spent now nearly 50 years examining it, studying it. And you know, it's an amazing thing because the more closely you examine the works of man, the more closely you scrutinize them and look at them, the more you see the imperfection in it, no matter how perfect it might appear. I spent 10 years working in the field of quality control. And there I had to study, examine, inspect very carefully works that man made. You take the finest crafted part made by the best tool and die maker or the most elaborate CNC machine, and when you first look at it, it looks like a thing of beauty. But the more you examine it, the more you see the imperfection. You take, for example, one of, the, one of the requirements, and if you have a part that has to fit together with another part with no real friction, it has to have a certain degree of smoothness. That's an actual um, design requirement. And so then you look at that to determine it. You compare that to a surface gauge, and that shows you different levels of smoothness. You examine it under magnification, but how much magnification you look at it with is also predetermined in the design. Because if you look at it under 10, to 10, 10 times magnification, it looks pretty smooth. You look at it at 50 and you begin to see what appears to be little waves. Kick that up to 100 and now those waves become ridges and kick it up any farther and they look like mountains. <laughs> the imperfection in that smoothness, the roughness that's there. 
And yet God's word, no matter how closely you examine it, no how deep you go, you only become more and more amazed. Think about the, the, the physical body itself. You can look at that physical body and it looks pretty good, you know. Maybe not this particular one, but there's some out there that look pretty good still. You know, you're, a young fellow looks at that gal and, man, she looks really pretty. But then beyond just that surface beauty, you begin to consider the human body, the way that God constructed it, the skeletal system, the muscular system, the, the different organs, all those different systems in the body, and how amazingly they're put together. And you can keep going deeper. You can actually examine it on a cellular, cellular level and see again just how amazing God designed it, the detail and the perfection that's in it. So it is with God's Word. The deeper we go into it, the more we see the beauty and perfection of it. The more we stand in amazement of it. And the more we become convinced, not only that there is a God behind it, but that we can trust that God. We can trust God to do what He says in His Word. We can trust God to keep what He's promised. We can trust the integrity of the Word of God because we see for ourselves the beauty and perfection of it if we are willing to take the time to look. Rather than continue to show different verses that talk about the perfection and beauty of God's Word, I'd like to let the Word of God speak for itself. I'll read first a quote from E.W. Bullinger. But our job... Our object is to open the book and let it speak, to hear its voice, to study it from within itself and have regard to other objects and subjects only from what it teaches about them. Like Ezra of old, our desire is to open the book and let it speak for itself with the full conviction that if this can be done, it can speak more loudly and more effectively for itself than any man can speak on its behalf. That's what we're going to do for the rest of the morning here. We're going to look at the detail of God's Word and let it speak for itself. And certainly we can't cover it all, and there's so many different areas that could be considered. Ones that if had I had the time, I would also go into. Things like the use of Eastern customs and idioms. Things like colors in the Bible and the structure of God's Word. All that show and portray in such incredible, incredible detail how God has crafted His Word in a way that only He could. The Word of God fits together, as many of you have heard, with a mathematical exactness and a scientific precision. And speaking of mathematics, that's where we'll begin our study with looking at numbers in Scripture. I'm holding up the book Numbers in Scripture by E.W. Bullinger, where he covers this subject in great detail. We won't do that, but I would like to share with you some of the things with it. I'm going to go through verses, if I refer to them at all, I'm going to go through them quickly, and you can either turn fast or just sit back and enjoy, whichever you'd like, but I want to try to cover as much ground as I can this morning. We begin with the number one. You see, all numbers are used 
in the Word of God with a deliberate purpose, with a deliberate purpose and meaning, with a significance that is constant in every occurrence throughout the entire Bible. So if I tell you that number one represents something, every time you see the number one, you can think about that, and so on and so forth for each of the numbers. And see the layers of God's Word. You know, it's like if you study, if you're somebody that has a great appreciation for art or poetry and have taken the time to examine and learn about it. I had a class in art appreciation. Um, I could have gotten a lot more out of it if it had not been such a darkly lit room and I had not been so tired every time I walked into the class. <laughs> but the design of the class anyway, failed, you know, my failure in it literally uh, aside, was to give you that appreciation by looking and understanding what goes into it. And that's what we're doing here with, with these numbers and other things. The number one indicates primacy and unity. Primacy. Primacy. That's true in both senses of that word. Primacy both in terms of importance and in terms of a beginning. Commencement is another time, word that you'll hear associated with the number one. So it's indicating primacy and also unity, a oneness. A oneness is unity. Just as man, Adam and Eve, came together to be one flesh. The first book of the Bible, Genesis, begins with, in the beginning, God. And it is commencement, it is primacy, it is that which comes first, and God coming first. And the number one is the number that is associated with God himself. Because God, as it tells us in Deuteronomy 6, 4, the Lord our God is one Lord. He is one God. And so the number one is associated with him, him from whom all things begin. In Ephesians chapter 4, in verses 3 to 6, you have another great use of this number one to show that unity, that oneness, where it talks about endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. That's a great section. You see both that oneness and unity and also in importance, that that one God is above all and through all and in you all. The number two denotes another, indicating a difference the number two indicates a difference. That can be seen throughout the Word of God by the use of pairs and how different those pairs are, beginning with the first pair that's spoken about, and I just referred to, Adam and Eve. Adam and then Eve was another, another of a different type, right? Not a different genus, not a different kind, but another different. God made man and he made woman. Male and female created he them. I don't care what anybody else may say. 
Male and female created he them. Another. And looking at some other people in the Bible that are associated together, we have Abraham and Lot. Two different people that are two very different characters. As were Isaac and Ishmael, the next pair that you come to in the Bible. As were Jacob and Esau, the next pair that you come to in the Bible. We have the first man, the first Adam, and then we have Jesus Christ, the last Adam. And those two are different. There is a difference between the first Adam and the last Adam, a difference that's described in Romans chapter 5. And when we talk about the difference in pairs in the Bible, the greatest is the difference between the two gods that are mentioned, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and the God of this world, Satan. Although two indicates a difference, and this will address a question I, I suspect is in some people's minds at the moment. Although two indicates a difference, that difference is not always indicative of disagreement. In fact, in many instances, although it's different, there is agreement. In John 8, Jesus Christ said, in verse 17, it is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one that bear witness of myself, and the Father that sent me beareth witness of me. Those two were different. The Father and the Son were not the same. They were another, different. And yet, they both agreed in Jesus Christ being the Messiah, the Savior. In 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1 says, This is the third time I am coming to you, and in the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. Two different witnesses. They're different people, but yet in that same testimony, their word is established. And so we get to the Joseph <clears throat> And in Joseph, as he dealt with dreams, there was the dream of the butler and the dream of the baker that on the surface appeared to be very similar, and yet those dreams turned out to be very different. And on the other hand, Joseph, in interpreting the dreams, the two dreams of Pharaoh, although those two dreams were different in detail, they were one in agreement, and that one being in the revelation that was being established, and that principle of God revealing something twice, giving revelation twice, establishes it. We see that from that record, and that's a truth in just walking by the Spirit. We come then to the number three. Three stands for that which is complete, entire, solid. Three also denotes divine perfection. There are three major feasts in the Bible. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Harvest, which is also referred to as the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost. That's all one feast, though. And the Feast of Tabernacles, three major feasts that they celebrated. The Old Testament is divided into three, the Law, the Prophets, and the Psalms or other writings. Those three together make the entire or complete Word of God in the Old Testament. Man is a threefold being body, soul, and spirit. And if he only has body and soul, he is not complete. 
he is lacking. Jesus Christ was in the grave three days and three nights, showing that he had completely fulfilled the requirement in order to pay the price for man's sins. And in the church epistles, in a believer's life, there are those, that threefold cord of believing, hope, and love that are the foundation of our walk. The number four, then, is a number for the world. Did I tell you number three is, it also denotes divine perfection? Okay. The number four is the number for the world. And it shows man's relationship to God's creation. There are four elements in the world. Earth, air, fire, and water. There are four seasons. Frankie Valley is not one of them. <laughs> there are four directions, north, south, east, and west. There are four gospels. There are four different types of ground described for the sower sowing the seed, indicating the earth and indicating man's relationship to God's creation. The number five, if people know any numbers in Scripture, that's one that they'll know. That's grace. That's right. It's God's divine favor. And again, I won't go into all the detail that Bollinger goes into, but each of the numbers, once you get past two, can be also considered in terms of the numbers that make it up. I mentioned this here with the number five because that one's real easy to see and, and kind of cool to think about. You have the number four, which was the earth, and number one representing God, and grace is God in relationship to the, his creation, his divine favor to us. In the Old Testament, the number five is very significant in the tabernacle. It speaks about the design of the tabernacle containing five curtains, five bars, that kind that you get a drink from, five pillars, five sockets, an altar made of wood that was five cubits long and five cubits wide, and the height of the court within the tabernacle was five cubits. There were five kinds of animals that were sacrificed under the old covenant law of sacrifice. Goats, sheep, cattle, pigeons, and doves. 5,000 people were fed with five loaves of bread in Mark chapter 8. In Acts chapter 4, in the early days of the church, there were about 5,000 that believed. And Jesus Christ, between his resurrection and the day of ascension, in those 40 days, showed himself unto about 500 brethren at once. Pretty cool. Number six, the number of six is the number for man, and it often shows man without God and the world in opposition to God. Man himself was created on the sixth day. There were six days to labor. There's six different words used in the Bible for man between the Hebrew and the Greek. And, of course, the one that a lot of people are aware of, the number for the Antichrist is 666, certainly in opposition to God. The number seven is the other one that, you know, everybody is familiar with, that they know any numbers, and that represents spiritual perfection, spiritual perfection. There were seven days to creation, and on the seventh day, it was complete. Everything that was needed was accomplished. And so God rested on the seventh, and on the seventh day of the week is the, sabbatic, the, the Sabbath, the day that we are to rest and worship God. 
The seventh year was the sabbatical year, and after seven times that went around, on the 49th year, you had the year of Jubilee. There are, of course, and most notably, the seven church epistles, in which the all-truth for this age, for this administration, is made known, spiritual perfection. There are seven, seven titles, different titles for Christ in the book of Hebrews, showing different aspects of what he came and did. And in the book of Revelation, the number seven features heavenly, heavily, heavily. There are seven churches, seven candlesticks, seven seals, and seven trumpets. The number eight, then, indicates a new beginning. It is associated not only with a new beginning, but with resurrection and regeneration. You can see how those fit into the concept of a new beginning, but it's used heavily in that sense. In 2 Peter chapter 2, it talks about Noah. Noah, of course, involved with a new beginning, and Noah was the eighth person. And on that boat, there were eight souls that were saved by water. Regeneration, a new beginning. There are eight resurrections in the Bible. I don't mean eight like, you know, the resurrection of the just. I'm just eight people that were resurrected. Three in the Old Testament, three in the Gospels, and two in the book of Acts. Isn't that cool? You just see the exactness of how these words are used. The number nine is significant of the conclusion of a matter. It is the square of three, three times three, three being completeness, and so it is perfect completeness. It is the number that is used and associated with Holy Spirit. There are nine fruit of the Spirit, and there are nine what? Manifestations. Manifestations of the Spirit. The number 10 is the number for perfection of divine order. The number and order are perfect and complete. There were 10 plagues to get Israel out of Egypt, and then they were given 10 commandments, and they were instructed to share a tenth of all of the first fruits. The number 11 is a number marking disorder or imperfection. When Jerusalem was carried away by Nebuchadnezzar, it happened in the 11th year of Zedekiah's reign. And the number 12 signifies governmental perfection. There are 12 tribes of Israel, 12 apostles. And has... The, the fourth of a perfect number, it shows that governmental perfection. There are four perfect numbers. Three, which was that completeness and divine perfection. Seven, which was spiritual perfection. Ten, which was ordinal perfection. And twelve, which is the governmental perfection. There's one other number that I want to um, point out. The rest of the numbers are basically understood in light of the sum of them or the multiplication of them. But one that's used also with a very singular significance is the number 40. The number 40 indicates a time of trial, a time of proving or probation. It rained for 40 days and 40 nights. Forty years, Israel wandered in the wilderness. Forty days, Jesus Christ was tempted by the devil in the wilderness. And forty days after the resurrection, he showed himself by many infallible proofs. 
those are the greatness of the numbers. I want you to consider one more thing about the numbers, though. There are 66 books in the Bible written over a period of well over 1,000 years by 40 different writers. Think about that. Think about those numbers by all those people over all those years in all those books always being consistent. That in itself should be proof enough of the one author. If the seeing the use of the numbers in Scripture is not enough to boggle your imagination of, <laughs> of how all these different writers through all that time would all remember when they're writing to use these numbers in that same manner significantly. If that's not enough to, to just floor you at the detail, then something else to consider is the use of figures of speech in the Bible. Figures of speech are used to indicate in God's Word that which God wants emphasized. They are the Holy Spirit's markings of that which is most important. Because the nature of how figures of speech work, even if you're not familiar with them, is it calls your attention to something. It helps you to remember it. It causes that which is written to really stand out for you. Figures of speech that we use <clears throat> do the same thing. You know, you take, for example, I could say that a certain person had bad manners, and that would be a plain statement of fact, and that would give you a certain impression about that person. On the other hand, if I said, that person is a pig, that's a lot more vivid, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that gives you a much stronger impression of what I think of their manners. I can say that a person was successful, and that plain statement of fact communicates information. But you'll remember it more if I say, man, that guy really set the town on fire. Now, you don't think that, oh my goodness, he's an arson. He went and he literally <laughs> burnt down the entire town. No, you recognize that that's a figure of speech. And you recognize that it is a figure of speech and it communicates something more strongly to you. The Word of God is to be taken literally whenever and wherever possible. It's not for us to just decide that something's a figure because, well, you know, God said, let him that stole steal no more, but I, I think that's figurative. I, I don't think he literally <laughs> meant that or whatever else you might want to get out of, right? Whenever and wherever possible, we take the Word of God literally. But when a statement fails to be true to fact, that's when it indicates that it is a figure. And these words, these figures of speech, are used with a preciseness in God's Word. A preciseness that needs to be studied out, and that it requires that careful study, and it's worth that careful study to do so. When it comes to figures of speech in the Bible, it's far more than the measly handful of ones that modern writers use or are familiar with, the ones that literary critics take note of and applaud. God, you know, that's just a small handful. God, in the Bible, uses over 212. 212, 217, there's a couple of different numbers that I've encountered of how many figures of speech there are. I have yet to count them all up independently to verify which one. 
but <clears throat> over 212 different figures with as many as 40 different varieties in just one figure. Lots, lots. Not all of those figures of speech are in the, of the type that I just used, of uh, figures of comparison. There are other categories or classifications of figures. They can be classified into three major classifications. And if you think about, um, you know, the counterfeit of the adversary when it comes to this stuff, it's striking. There are figures of omission, there are figures of addition, and there are figures of change. Mm -hmm. Isn't that interesting? Figures that involve omission, figures that involve addition, and figures where the sense of words are changed. Different, many, many different figures, but they all work to call our attention to something. We'll look first at figures of comparison because those are the ones that we're already somewhat familiar with, if you paid attention at all to a literature class in, in school. One that you may be familiar with is simile, a simile. A simile, for in case you don't, in case you didn't pay attention in high school, a simile is a comparison using the words like or as. Like or as. In Psalm chapter 1, or Psalm 1 rather, in verse 3, it says, And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. They weren't literally going to dig a hole and stick the guy in it. He shall be like a tree planted by the waters. And it goes on to describe in what manner. In Psalm 17, in verse 8, it says, Keep me as, like or as, keep me as the apple of thy eye. There again, there's this beautiful figure that is so descriptive, so much greater than just saying we're special to God. Yeah. We're the, we're, it has the apple of his eye. Another figure of speech of comparison that you are probably familiar with is a metaphor. What's a metaphor? Cows to grazing, somebody once said. In Matthew chapter 5, a metaphor is a direct comparison. Simile is an indirect comparison. It's like. A metaphor is a direct comparison. It is. Not like, but is. In Matthew 5, ye are, verse 13, ye are the salt of the earth. Ye are the salt of the earth. Even stronger statement. You, not just your life, you are the salt of the earth. In John 15, verse 5, Jesus Christ said, I am the vine, ye are the branches. Those metaphors making a stronger comparison to show how we can do nothing on our own. How we, just as the branch can't function, can't live without the vine, so it is with us being in Him and in fellowship. Those two figures of comparison most people have been taught at some point in time. A third figure of comparison that you see in the Bible this is, again, even stronger. Just as metaphor is a stronger comparison than simile, hypocatastasis, the next one, is a stronger comparison than a metaphor. Simile used like or as. Metaphor just made it a great a direct comparison. You are like salt. But hypocatastasis, the comparison is so strong, the first, what being, is being used to compare, is not even in it. So you take, for example, Philippians 3, 2. 
this verse that is the most um, frequently quoted and put on display of any verse of Scripture. Philippians 3.2, beware of dogs. You see that verse everywhere. Neighbors that you had no idea that they were Christians, they have that on their fence. People that own junkyards, there they are, having that in prominent places on their fences, portraying that scripture, beware of dogs. It's obviously a figure of speech, not the way they're using it. God's not literally warning us here to be, you know, be, be aware of that neighbor's dog or that junkyard dog. It's not who he's talking about. He's talking about people, people that would be like dogs and that they would turn and attack you. They would backbite and attack you. But it's not even saying beware of Pharisees that are like dogs or legalists that are just says beware of dogs. It's also used, that same, not only figure, but that same particular use of it in Matthew chapter 7, verse, verse 6. Give not that which is holy unto the dogs. Hmm. Now, that doesn't mean when you finish your communion, don't take the leftover and feed it to your dog. It's talking about that we don't take God's word and share it with people that are just going to turn around and attack us. And another use of that same figure goes on, neither cast ye your pearls before swine. Again, not literal pearls, and it doesn't even mention, again, the truth, but that's what it's speaking about, that we would not put God's word in front of those people that would just like swine turn around and trample you underfoot, as it goes on to say. In Acts chapter 20, another <clears throat> similar use of the same figure of hypocatastasis. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Isn't that a much stronger statement than be careful of those people that would come in and teach you something different for their own gain, that might come and affect you in a way that would be destructive to your walk? Isn't it a much stronger, vivid way of communicating that? Beware grievous wolves that will devour the flock, not sparing the flock. You see how these figures work to really emphasize, to really drive home the point? Another figure of comparison, there are other ones that I won't go into, but another one that I, I'd, I'd like to share because not everybody is aware that this actually is a figure of speech, and another figure of comparison is a parable. A parable is a figure of speech. It is a figure of comparison. In fact, a parable is an extended simile. A parable is making a comparison by saying that something is like although not all parables will necessarily use that word like or as. But the reason why it is an extended simile as opposed to being an extended metaphor is because that parable is not a direct comparison. It's just saying this is like, and that's an important thing in understanding parables themselves so that you don't try to make connections beyond what you should. You should look for that one particular point of comparison. If you go beyond that, you can end up wrongly applying the Word of God. Okay, and that's a whole more than I have time to go into. A couple of places where it does use the like is in Matthew 13, in verses 24, 31, and 33, where it says, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed. The kingdom of heaven is like to a grain of mustard seed. The kingdom of heaven is like unto leaven. Here, it's using those concrete, physical examples to explain the abstract spiritual concept of what the kingdom of heaven is like. To move into a different category, 
of figures, moving into the figures of omission. You can turn to Philippians chapter 4 if you want. This one's worth taking a look at. One of the figures of omission, and there are a couple, the other one I won't go into is ellipsis, where uh, I guess I'm telling you, so I am. Ellipsis is leaving a word out that would your mind sort of supplies automatically. But this one's easy to see and recognize quickly, and it's ascendanton, ascendanton. Or also in the English known has no ands, no ands, A-N-D-S. That figure is an enumeration of things without a conjunction. When you have a list of things put together without the word and in between, just separated by commas in our grammatical usage. It serves the purpose to move you quickly towards the conclusion at the end of the list rather than call you to focus on each individual item as much. Not that the individual items are unimportant, but that's not what the focus should be on. What God wants emphasized, what he wants you to most remember is the conclusion at the end. As it is in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, where it says, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, here's the conclusion, think on these things. Those things that are lovely, true, honest, good report, just, those are all fall into the same category. Many different aspects of it. But the conclusion is, it's those kind of things that we should think on, that we should meditate on. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah. Moving away from figures of omission, we move to figures of addition. And a perfect contrast between those two different types of figures are the two specific figures that are the opposites of each other. Ascendanton, which was no ands, is a figure of omission. The figure of addition is polysyndeton, which is many ants. Mm -hmm. And it works to serve the exact opposite function. Rather than just hasten to the conclusion, when God separates a list of items by the conjunction and, the purpose, purpose of it is to have a stop and think about each one of those items as it is in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And it goes on with even a longer list separated by ants. But God wants us to stop and think about each one of those ingredients that all made up to the success of what happened with those many signs and wonders. Each one of those elements, the doctrine, the breaking of bread, the prayers, the respect, all of these were all instrumental in what happened there with the believers in that day and age, as well as today when we apply it. Another figure of repetition these are figures of repetition that I'm giving you. And, of course, that's what when you repeat something, even, even not knowing the figure. If I tell you something more than once, it's because I want you to understand it, unless I'm, you know, just like to rattle on. 
Another figure that works in that same manner is anaphora, A-N-A-P-H-O-R-A, which is like sentence book beginnings. It's the repetition of the same word at the beginning of successive sentences. You use the same word in each statement that you're making at the beginning. Romans chapter 8, verse 33 is a great example of that. 8.33, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? That repetition of who? Who? Who do you, th it's like David going up against Goliath and everybody was shaking in their boots, right? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine? Who is it that thinks that they can condemn you? Who is it that thinks that they can say something against you? Who can be against you? They're nothing. They're nothing compared to God. That's the way that figure works. Another great example is in Deuteronomy chapter 28. Where again, in verse 3, we see this figure of anaphora, the repetition of the same word in successive clauses or sentences. Blessed shall be, shalt thou be in the city, and blessed shalt thou be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of thy body, and the fruit of the ground, and the fruit of thy cattle, the increase of the kind, and the flocks of thy sheep. Blessed shall be thy basket and thy store. And you're familiar, that list of blessings goes on and on. What's God emphasizing there? The blessings, that we are blessed, that we are blessed. And, of course, there's another list following that where that same figure of speech is used where instead curse is repeated many times if, if we choose not to walk according to his word. Anaphor was words that begin, sentences that begin with the same word. The opposite of that is the figure of speech Epistrophe, I'm sure I'm not pronouncing that right, E-P-I-S-T-R-O-P-H-E, which is like sentence endings. It's the repetition of the same word or words at the end of successive sentences. Psalm 115, verse 9. O Israel, trust thou in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Ye the fear of the Lord, trust in the Lord, he is their help and their shield. You see the same words at the end of each of those sentences emphasizing to us that God is our help and our shield. Another figure of repetition is called anti-metabole or something like that. <laughs> it means counter-change counter-change. It's the repetition of words in reverse order for the purpose of opposing one thing to another. Hmm. Repetition of words in reverse order to emphasize that these things are opposites. So the order of the words themselves are opposite. Here's a great one in Isaiah chapter 5 that you are probably familiar from the Gospels because it's quoted there, which is also another figure of speech. When you have a, a verse quoted, that's a gnome. I don't mean a little guy on your lawn <laughs> driving a little mobile. Um, 
A gnome, it's spelled the same way. A gnome, though, is when you have a scripture quoted. Okay, that's the figure of speech. But what I'm actually looking at is not that figure, but that much more difficult one to say, which means counterbalance, counterchange. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20. Woe unto him that call evil good and good evil, and put darkness for light and light for darkness, and put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. You see how those things are? The, the difference in those is emphasized by repeating it in reverse order. It drives it home even more how opposite these things are. Another figure of speech, of repetition, is a panadiplosis. For some reason that reminds me of some toothpaste no longer made. It means encircling. And that is the repetition of the same word or words at both the beginning and end of a sentence. So we saw one where the words at the beginning of the sentence were repeated. We saw another figure of speech where the words at the end of a sentence were repeated. In this one, the words are repeated at the beginning and end of the sentence. Philippians 4.4. This is a very familiar one. Rejoice in the Lord always. Beginning of the word. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say what? Rejoice. 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 That's stuck in your mind, right? Yeah. Psalm 27, verse 14. Wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen thine heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. See how these work? Even when, you're not, even when you don't know it's a figure, it still accomplishes it. It's not like, well, this only works for people that are willing to take the time to really go into this book, and it was wasted on everybody else. No, it still works. It still accomplishes that same end. But boy, when you do understand it, when you do recognize that, when you begin to notice these things, your enjoyment, your appreciation is so magnified. You can enjoy the Michelangelo. You can enjoy some great work of Rembrandt or one of those other Ninja Turtles. <laughs> but if you understand something about art, it's enhanced all the more, isn't it? Yes. If you didn't sleep through that class like I did. <laughs> I still appreciate art. Same way with poetry, same way with great literature, you know. But again, these are just man's works. As beautiful as they are, they don't compare to God's. The perfection of the Word of God is witnessed in all of those wonderful details. But as I said earlier, it's witnessed in not just the individual details, but how those work together, how they're fitted together to form this great whole, this great masterpiece of God's creation, this greatest masterpiece of God's creation. Those that don't recognize it, those that don't appreciate it, are just ones, fools, that have never taken the time to really look at it closely enough. And people can come to a lot of conclusions when they don't take the time to really look closely enough. You know, for a long time, and I guess there's still people that believe that the earth's flat. <laughs> but if you've taken the trouble to sail around it, or fly around it, or now witness it from off in space, you see with that closer examination that clearly it's round. God's word can be criticized by those that have never looked closely enough. You know, I, out of curiosity and thinking about this, I looked up what are the greatest books 
ever written, according to man. And it mentioned a long list, and it varied from one source to another, not surprisingly. But you frequently saw Ulysses by James Joyce, War and Peace by Leo Tolstoy, Great Expectations by Charles Dickens, To Kill a Mockingbird by Harper Lee, The Great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald. I've read a lot of those books, and I enjoy them. But my goodness, none of them begin to hold a candle to the greatest book ever written, the first book ever written, ever published, rather, the first book ever printed, and one that has been the people's choice since then. It has been, every year since first printed, the top bestseller. It remains, although our world seems to move farther away, it still remains by a country mile, there's a figure, uh, the best-selling book. It's impossible to give accurate numbers for the first book literally ever printed, but it is estimated that over 6 billion copies have been sold since first printed, over 6 billion. And annual sales remain at over 100 million copies, over 100 million copies every year. The Bible is not just another book. It is the Word of God with a capital T and so on and so forth. The Word of God. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, When we receive it has the Word of God, not just another book, not filled with myths and interpolations and contradictions. But when we take the time to dig deep, to really examine it, to really study it, and see it as the Word of God, we see, as it says here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, for this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when you receive the Word which ye heard of us, you received it not as the word of men, not as just another book, not as some other great book of writing or something that was simply inspired by God, but the God-breathed word. That God-breathed word, that word that was given by God, and holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. But as it is not the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that do what? Believe. Believe. When we recognize it has the Word of God, it effectually works. It produces the desired results. Man's basic spiritual problem is always the integrity of God's Word. And the way that we move beyond that is to become convinced that it is a perfect Word. I'd like to close with this wonderful little poem, one of my favorites, The Anvil, God's Word. Last eve I paused beside a blacksmith's door and heard the anvil ring the vesper chime. Then looking in, I saw upon the floor old hammers worn with beating years of time. How many anvils have you had, had said I, to wear and batter all these hammers so? Just one, said he, and then with twinkling eye, the anvil wears the hammers out, you know. And so I thought the anvil of God's word. For ages, skeptics' blows have beat upon. 
Yet though the noise of falling blows was heard, the anvil is unharmed, the hammer's gone. You can't bring me down, the word is on my mind. 